Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Friday, September 18th, 2015. tie up a few loose ends today. I will be gone on Monday and Tuesday of next week. I have a speaking engagement and I will be in the north part of North Dakota near the Canadian border. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually open up our Bibles and... You know, <laughs> use sound biblical exegesis, that, that threefold rule known as context, context, context. Have you heard of context before? Uh, you know, a Christ-centered human, uh, hermeneutic, uh, you know, proper distinction of law and gospel in order to compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, and prophecy experts. And those put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying uh, whose materials we need to be studying instead of our Bibles in our small group Bible studies. Yeah, and the word is instead of. That's exactly right. Um, well, let's see if it actually squares with what God's word says or if um, they're just making stuff up and uh, making a lot of money doing it. That's kind of the thing. So uh, like I said at the uh, very opening of the program, a couple of things. Um, I will not be in studio on Monday or Tuesday of next week. I have a speaking engagement and we'll be traveling to uh, the northern part of North Dakota, you know, about four hours from here, and uh, be speaking to a group of pastors and uh, near the Canadian border. Uh, and so that should be a lot of fun. And as a result of that, I will not be in studio on Monday or Tuesday of next week. Um, today, we have some loose ends that we need to uh, wrap up. So we're not going to be able to get to email today. I hope to be able to get back to email next week. And we might have to uh, dedicate a few segments to it to you know, at least start to put a dent into our emails. But uh, what we're going to be doing today, um, yeah, I'm still a little hot under the collar about the whole Shemitah, Super Shemitah thing. I mean, I'll be blunt. Um, you know, this is one of those things where, you know, after really deeply researching Jonathan Kahn and, uh, and come to find out by his own admission, he doesn't even know when the, Ju when the Jubilee years are with any specificity. 
and for him to you know use the jubilee year and you know create this doctrine of the super shemitah as a means of not having to admit that he was wrong on the shemitah is is so duplicitous and so wicked and so evil i mean you know there's there's times that e- e- even i cannot without blowing up i mean deal with, <laughs> with some of the things i'm covering here and i am just literally uh, steamed steamed that he would be that evil and that wicked rather than repent and say you know what i was wrong you know i i was wrong i you know i created this expectation that something was supposed to happen on a little 29 and nothing happened and all these people you know you know believe me because they thought that i you know because i'm you know of jewish descent that i'm a rabbi i speak hebrew you know or he's actually made himself a rabbi uh, that uh, that you know i know what i'm talking about when in fact i didn't know what i was talking about that, i mean that's really the thing that galls me so anyway just kind <clears> of <throat> dealing with my own my own uh, <clears throat> emotional fallout if you would on that but we're 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 still not done with all of this um, you know, the, one of the persons who's been making a lot of hay and, uh, you know, a lot of money fear-mongering on all of this is uh, Jim Baker. And somebody sent me a, um, a, uh, an article, a link to an article in the Christian Post, and uh, the headline of which is uh, just unbelievable. I mean, unbelievably irresponsible. And the Christian Post headline reads, Cannibalism in the End Times? Jim Baker says, buy his food or be forced to eat human flesh. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, this is, this is fear-mongering for a profit. And these guys are getting more and more brazen. I mean, last week we, uh, we played uh, uh, Jim Baker basically praying for, you know, and hoping for, you know, in, in expectation of, you know, some major cataclysm on the planet, you know, in order to somehow vindicate his false teaching on the Shemitah and the expectation that Elul 29, because it was falling on a Sunday, that something had to happen terrible around the world over the weekend. You know, it, it, it's, and so now, you know, now he's saying, you know, buy his food or you're, you know, you, you the Bible says you're going to be forced to engage in cannibalism. And it's like, what text of scripture is he talking about? I mean, it, it, it's it's just unbelievable. Where in scripture does it say, if I don't buy Jim Baker's food, that I'm going to have to engage in cannibalism? I mean, I mean, it's just unbelievable the type of irresponsible fear mongering. And of course, the liberal right wing watch has you know. You know, again, kind of figured out what's going on here. They went after Khan, and they've also gone after Jim Baker. You know, and uh, and and the thing is, is that I uh, see now I'm going to vent. <laughs> you know, I was afraid I was going to do this on the air. I'm going to vent a little bit here. And uh, here's the problem. You know, one of the major problems in evangelicalism is that th- there seems to be two camps, and the two camps are the conservative camp. And the liberal camp. And the liberal camp basically is for people with a brain. At least that's how they're, uh, how they're you know, positioning themselves. While the conservative camp seems to be the camp that tolerates every kind of strange, bizarre, 
uh, you know, wind of doctrine, you know, that doesn't actually square with scripture. It's like, you know, people without a brain, people who are completely gullible. Since when did being a conservative Christian equate with being gullible? I don't understand that. Why is it that uh, a lot of the people who say, well, we believe in the inerrancy, the authority of Scripture, we believe that it's inspired of you know, God the Holy Spirit, that it's infallible and, and, the, and teaches us the truth, and you know, they, in contradistinction to the liberals who don't believe such things. But why is it that those who supposedly are supposed to be conservative have to be, you know, have to be the ones that, well, we, we tolerate every single bizarre wingnut who's teaching all kinds of strange doctrines for a profit, of course, you know, teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach. But we welcome them into the conservative camp because uh, they, well, they, well, they actually believe that the Bible's the Word of God. Well, yeah, I mean, what's the point of believing the Bible's the Word of God if you're not rightly handling it or teaching it or if you're twisting it and teaching for shameful gain the things that you ought not to teach? So as a result of it, we've got this major problem within the visible body of Christ is that uh, the way things are are being split in the body of Christ between liberal and conservative, liberal equals I have a brain and conservative equals I'm a complete gullible buffoon. This is this is ridiculous. If you're a conservative and you're a Christian, then you should be not tolerating people like Jim Baker and Jonathan Kahn and others at all. And, you know, you need to toss them into the liberal camp. You know, the the liberal camp should be the waste bucket of people who call themselves Christians, but either twist God's word, deny God's word or whatever. And they can call themselves Christians and wave the American flag all they want. I mean, but that doesn't mean that they're of us. Okay. And so we got a problem here. And that is, is that when the liberal right white right wing watch is is basically you know sitting there pointing out hey you conservatives when it comes to whatever your religion is this is nuts and you know what they're right we've got a problem we've got a major problem and you know i i don't know what the solution is to it because conservative christians you know are putting up with all kinds of crazy nonsensical people uh, all in the name of, well, they believe the Bible's the word of God, so they got to be one of us. Yeah, no, they're not. No, they're not because they're not teaching sound, biblical, historic, Christian doctrine. They're, you know, they're teaching for shameful gain things that they ought not to teach, and they are fleecing God's sheep. You know, the conservative needs to not be associated with a gullible. You, you know what I'm saying? It, it just, I mean... If anything, conservative in people's mind ought to bring to mind, oh, these are the people who take Scripture seriously. They don't put up with false doctrine. They they are the ones who can take liberals to task. And I mean take them to task and show that these people are not, not even Christian and uh, and have the high ground when it comes to evidence supporting the Scriptures. These are the people who rigorously proclaim Christ and Him crucified for our sins and preach law, gospel, sin, grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. These are people who are theologically precise, who are theologically accurate, and theologically intolerant of buffoonery. But unfortunately, that's not what's happened. You know, the conservative, you know, call yourself a conservative Christian 
And nowadays, I mean, you you might as well basically put a kick me sign on your back and walk around. <laughs> you know, uh, anyway, yeah. So yeah, I'm a little hot under the collar. I'm just, it's just absolutely galling to me. So what we're gonna do today is, uh, you know, like I said, we got some loose ends. We got an end of the world update with uh, Jim Baker talking about cannibalism. I think I've got time for Patricia King. And uh, and then we're going to uh, finish up with Beth Moore because I, I really wanted to get to the Beth Moore part two segment on unity for the sake of unity kind of thing. And I want to pay, want you to pay close attention to how she twists God's word on this unity thing uh, because there's something that she does not pay attention to because I don't think she knows how to pay attention to it. This is a woman who is capable of looking up a Greek word in a lexicon or looking it up in Strong's, but she doesn't understand the verb tenses in the Greek language. And as a result of it, she makes a supreme error when it comes to her doctrine on, on unity. And then in hour number two, then in hour number two, we are going to listen to a uh, well, I, I, I guess well, I, it is a good sermon. We're going to listen to a good sermon, but I'm going to review it. A seminary student who also works at uh, Grace to You, uh, who works for John MacArthur, has uh, well, we'll find out either uh, <clears throat> foolishly or not. You know whether we'll de- we'll decide that at the time. Sent me a link to a sermon that he recently preached about uh, you know God is revealed on God's terms. I, that's the, my paraphrase of his sermon. And uh, we're going to listen to it, and I'm going to actually sit in on it and review it. I, a lot of times when we play a good sermon, uh, we don't review it. Uh, this time we're going to kind of take it apart and see what he does, see if he, if he rightly handles God's word, if he proclaims law, gospel, sin, grace, repentance, forgiveness of sins, you know, kind of take a look at you know at our general categories here, or to see if he's you know playing fast and loose with the scripture. I I don't think that's going to be the case, but that's what we're going to be doing in hour number two. So I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and uh, since we're going to be starting off with a uh, end of the world Jim Baker update, that requires us to do this. So what we're going to be listening to is another section of, of uh, segment of fear mongering for fun and profit. <sighs> and as you can tell, based upon my opening monologue, I am a bit hot under the collar. And my question is, how long are people that call themselves conservative Christians going to put up with this nonsense? Because the liberals are sure making hay about this because this is 
patently absurd and on its face is an egregious example of fear-mongering and twisting God's word for a prophet. Now, just so you know, uh, you know when this aired, this was the Ready Now Expo, uh, Expo Fall 2015, Day 9 is uh, the name of the episode. And you can find this over at uh, jimbakershow.com. First aired on September 7th, 2015. And uh, the uh, the person in you know in question the the book that they're talking about was written by a guy by the name of Carl Gallup's. But I want you to hear this just blatant example of fear mongering and why you need to not be listening to the to the naysayers who are saying don't you be listening to that Jim Baker. This has nothing to do with Christianity, and this is just absolutely irresponsible and egregious. And again. A perfect example of you know what's wrong here. Uh, when it comes to liberals and conservatives, when it comes to Christianity, conservatives need to have the doctrinal theological high ground and be those who don't put up with this kind of nonsense. Here's Jim Baker explaining how um, if you don't buy his food, you're going to end up, well, resorting to cannibalism. Here we go. One second after tells us all hell breaks loose when the world comes apart. If you have food and the gangs know it, they will come for it. Other people, your neighbors, your sweet, sweet neighbors, don't tell them you got food unless they're part of the team that's your, your little group of people that you trust. As long as they're being fed, they probably won't turn on you, but, you know, the, the Bible says they're going to eat their arms. The Bible says they're going to eat their babies. Then it says they're going to eat their children. That's what people do when they get hungry. So Jim Baker's this really fool because he's telling you to store food. Food that if the social... Yeah, no, the issue is... That listen, there's nothing wrong with selling prepper supplies or having bug out bags or things like that, or you know, having food stored up in case of a natural disaster. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Notice what he just said there, though. God says you're going if you're you're going to resort to cannibalism if you don't buy his food. That's basically what he's saying, and that's the problem. He's bringing God into this and misquoting Scripture. He was supposedly quoting from Isaiah chapter 9. Misquoting Scripture saying, oh, the Bible says you're going you're gonna to eat your own babies. Yeah. See, that's the problem. It's one thing to sell food and do so with an honest sales pitch and say, you know, you never know when disaster is going to strike. You know, the world's kind of a scary place. Things, you just don't know when things are going to go poorly. So it's a good idea to, you know, store food and things like that. And we happen to sell those supplies. And it's a whole other pitch to basically say, God says, if you're not storing this stuff up, oh, you're going to end up eating other people. Really? Security stops. How are we going to keep Social Security up? How many get Social Security? Raise your hand, come on, both hands. Wave it, wave it, come on. How many depend on Social Security? Come on, raise your hand. You depend on it. I mean, you know, you, you live off from it. You, or you just give it all away. I mean, what, you, you, you need it, right? 
They don't want to admit that. <laughs> if the Social Security checks don't come, what are you going to do? So now we're basically saying, you know, hey, you know, I'm a pastor. I'm telling you, you know, you, you know, it, it looks like the government's going to stop sending you your Social Security checks. But, you know, hey, I care about you. So buy my, you know, my prepper supplies and buckets of food. I'm not talking about atomic bombs. I'm not talking about tornadoes. I'm not talking about tsunamis. I'm talking about the government's already broke. How come you have more trust in, in the, even our money said in God we trust, but the government doesn't mean that anymore. That's probably against the law to say that in our country. But how can we trust a country that's broke? So you better start trusting Jim Baker. Don't trust the government. Trust Jim Baker. Send me your Social Security money so I can send you food buckets. Because you can trust me because I'm not broke. That has a right for a separate entity to print money. That's worthless. That's as valuable as the paper that it's printed on. Maybe not even that valuable. And should we get into his idea about what money is worth? Money is worth whatever anybody will give you for it. So, yeah, we've got a major problem here is is that now he's become some kind of economic expert. And, uh, well, you know, he's just declared all on his own. Your money isn't worth anything. But it, it apparently it's worth a, it, it's worth enough that he wants several thousands of that worthless money. For you to send it to him so that you can purchase from him food buckets. So he just declared money to be worthless. It's worthless. But it's, yeah, he sure does seem to want a lot of that worthless money in order to uh, send you large quantities of food buckets. What do we do? Help me with this. Well, and that's the point of, of your ministry. That's one of the major points I make in my book is that, look, when it all falls apart like that, then, then it comes down to basic survival. So, and, and that, so these buckets, if nothing happens but the, and the government goes broke, and we already are, it's not a fool. The Bible says a fool doesn't prepare. Exactly. You're, and yet preachers are telling them, that they're foolish if they store up. No, you're a fool. There's people literally saying, don't do what... Yeah, and the, the scroll on the bottom of the television screen, $3,500 for tasty new food offers, seven years of food for you. All you got to do is send 3500 worthless dollars to jimbakershow.com, and they'll send you a seven-year supply of food. But Jim Baker's saying... I know. I don't want that blood on my hands. When you're huddled in a corner with your grandbaby and they're screaming and crying and there's no food, I don't want that blood on my hands, preacher. That's right. That's right. No, the Bible. Mm. So there's going to be blood on your hands if a disaster comes. 
and people are incapable of going into their basements and grabbing food. Yeah, this is just egregious fear-mongering. And like I said, the thing that's really got me galled right now, the thing that's really got me upset, is that uh, the liberals see this for what this is. Absolute poppycock fear-mongering for a profit. All in the name of Jesus, in the name of God. And this, and Jim Baker is basically held forward as, you know, an example of conservative evangelical religion, which in fact he is. Why? Yet people with half a brain, you know what they end up doing? When they, you know, they sit there and go, you know, I am tired of my in- intelligence being insulted by these conservatives. Liberalism seems like it, it's it, it's a much more valid option for me because I have a brain. When what should be happening is conservatives say, you know, I've got a brain and I'm not going to put up and tolerate this kind of nonsense in the name of Jesus. And in mass, conservatives should not be tolerating these kinds of wingnuts, fear mongers, and parasites who are living off of and exploiting the body of Christ all in the name of Jesus and God and, and, and grandma and apple pie in the United States of America. That's the problem. Yeah, no, we, we've, got a, we've got a major problem here. We've, we've got a major problem here, and that is, is that conservative Christianity has become synonymous with, I'm a fool. It's become synonymous with, I'm completely gullible. Go ahead and exploit me for large quantities of money. And that is a big problem. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, a Patricia King update as well as uh, finishing up with uh, Beth Moore on her Unity for the Sake of Unity's uh, message. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Already? Right, uh, package for you, ma'am. Just uh, sign there. Oh dear, I was expecting something a bit larger. 
Is that all there is? Uh, afraid so, ma'am. Uh, sorry to disappoint. Oh, no worries. I'm sure more will be on the way. Uh, thank you so very much. Uh, have a good day, ma'am. I wonder what's in here. Oh, I do hope I haven't been ordering chia pits in my sleep again. Oh, it's a DVD! Oh, I said better not be another one of those Lectio Divina thingies. Watching this means that you have purchased the post-apocalyptic preparedness package. You have bought the bronze edition. Bronze edition? Please don't be alarmed, as your full order will be arriving within the next few weeks. Next few weeks? The end of the world might have happened by then. I should have paid the extra $99.99 for the faster shipping. The purpose of this DVD is to catalog everything that you will be receiving in the bronze edition package, along with information on our other great offers. Looks like there are different chapters to select from. Let's see here. Toiletries, clothing, nourishment, shelter, sanitation, medicine, gardening, energy, communication, weaponry, underwater basket weaving. Okay. Additional accessories, expansion packs, and ooh, play all. <laughs> I'll choose that one. As you know, God has given us signs in the sun, moon, and stars that the end times are approaching. After the destruction of your country, the everyday comforts you currently enjoy will have been disintegrated by God's judgment. By investing in our merchandise, you have proven to God that you have audacious faith in his prophets, seers, and visionaries. Now we're ready to dive into the crucial survival equipment you have purchased. Well, I'm certainly glad that God knows I'm faithful. No doom and gloom for me. You have purchased the... Bronze Edition. Please pay attention to which items you will be receiving. I have my new pad ready. Part 1. Toiletries. In the bronze edition, your toilet paper will be made from the finest scratchy banana leaves and corrugated tree bark. Toilet paper made from scratchy banana leaves and... wait, what? In the silver edition, your toilet paper will be made from all-natural, organic, recycled plastic. In the gold edition, your toilet paper will be made from hand-quilted spider silk. It's can't be right! In the bronze edition, you will receive a block of wood with bristles and a baking soda solution for maintaining healthy teeth and gums. Here's a pro tip. You can use your own hair as dental floss. Yeah! In the silver edition, you will receive... Oh my! I sat on the remote! It's fast-forwarding! Um, uh, where's that darn play button? Oh, oh, right, there it is. Part 5. Nourishment. In the bronze edition, you will receive 24 cans, each containing one month's supply of beans. As a nifty space saver, the cans are first filled with fresh river water, then topped off with dehydrated beans. This way, you'll have your food and water in the same convenient package. Strainers and can openers will not be included. The silver edition will provide dried fruit and vegetable packets along with a 36-month supply of chicken noodle soup and 50 gallons of distilled water. The Silver Edition will provide dried fruit and vegetable packets along with a 36-month supply of chicken noodle soup and 50 gallons of distilled water. What? How is that even fair? Gold Edition buyers will be given 50 crates of freeze-dried astronaut dinners. Flavors include chicken corn on blue, lobster surprise, filet mignon, oysters, caviar, and steak. Cheese platters will be served on the side of every dish. Water will come in glass bottles along with a complimentary water fountain with color-changing LEDs. This is ridiculous! I can't believe I wasted my cat's life insurance on this! What else is in this stupid thing? Gold Edition shelters have been constructed by our teams ahead of time for you. You will be getting your maps and keys to access your top-secret bunker in the coming weeks. 
complimentary bouncy castles and jacuzzis can be found next to the theater room behind the bowling alley. In the silver edition, you will get him and her matching gardening gloves. For prosperous crops, this edition includes an inflatable radiation-proof greenhouse. Part 33, Communication. Now pay attention, bronze buyers. Using two of your Space Saver nourishment cans, you can attach this six-foot string to each side to make an electricity-free telephone. As a special promotion, we will also be giving out 12-foot strings for long-distance calls. Gold Edition weaponry includes six holy hand grenades, one hideaway moat, and... I can't believe this! They didn't say anything about different editions on the website. How, how do I upgrade? I can't survive with any of the useless junk they're sending me. What are the shams of these sleaze balls running? I could have sworn she said something about expansion packs. Additional accessories, such as a Holy Ghost decoder ring or a church box CD, can be purchased individually for $24.99 each. Please wait for our full accessory list. Ah! I don't want to hear any more of this rubbish. Part 104. Expansion Packs. Our hottest item is the Mr. Sparkle Party Pack. This little number comes with four sparkle suits, one disco ball, seizure-inducing strobe lights, and confetti poppers. It's fun for the whole family. I want my money back. This is an absolute outrage. I can't believe I fell for this ruse. This concludes our DVD presentation. If you have any questions, please call the number not located at the bottom of your screen. And remember that all payments are non-refundable and non-negotiable. Thank you, and have a wonderful apocalypse. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today.
Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think there's something wrong with conservative evangelicalism. It's become synonymous with gullible. That's a big problem. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we uh, depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift pay to Fighting for the Faith, send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along, talk about gullibility. Time for a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there. When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are, standing in a row. Big one, small one, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. Roly bowl a ball, roly bowl a ball, singing roly bowl a ball, a penny a pitch. That's right, I've got a lovely, lovely bunch of coconuts. So uh, what we're going to be listening to is, well, Patricia King. And, uh, well, Patricia King's not exactly known for her sound biblical doctrine, now is she? And the name of the video that we will be listening to is entitled Guaranteed Blessing for Your Life. Guaranteed Blessing for Your Life. Now, when you hear somebody talking like this, promising you blessings from God you can almost guarantee one thing, that this is going to somehow segue into sending them money. Let's see if Patricia King heads that direction. Here's Patricia King to explain to you how you can have guaranteed blessing for your life. Here we go. Hello, Patricia King here. I want to share with you how you can have guaranteed increased blessing in your life. What I'm about to share with you is not something that I'm flippantly sharing. No, it's more like greedily. That would be the correct adverb there. Something that I've walked in, uh, lived, activated, believed, and have been uncompromising toward in my life. And it has been proven to be true every single time. So if you have your Bibles ready, I would have you to turn to to Mark 4. Mm, Okay, Mark 4 apparently teaches how you can have guaranteed increased blessing for your life. Really? And this is, of course, the the parable of the sower and the seed. And Jesus said in verse 3, Behold, there went out a sower to sow. 
And it came to pass as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. Some fell on the stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, some sixty, and some a hundredfold. All right, so let's pause right there. We're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis. They are context, context, and context. Now, the parable of the sower and the different soils is a parable that appears in several gospels and Jesus himself gives us the interpretation of the parable. He gives us the interpretation of the parable in the gospel of Matthew. He also gives us the interpretation of the parable in the gospel of Mark. And so let's go ahead and let's pick it up. We'll finish up with the the parable and uh, I'll start at verse 6, so you understand we're kind of jumping into the middle of the parable. She read the text out, and I want to keep reading more context to see how Jesus interprets this parable. Here's what it says. So when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up, choked it, and yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty fold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And so he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. So what's being sown? Answer, the word of God. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy And they have no root in themselves, but they endure for a while. And when uh, tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of, uh, of other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. So there's Jesus' interpretation. Let's see if Patricia King's interpretation of this parable squares with Jesus' own interpretation. And so we're talking about guaranteed blessing and increase by activating... A principle of God's word. It is a... Nope, she's not. She's already twisting it. Why does anybody who calls himself a conservative Christian listen to this woman at all? A law, a spiritual law of God that works for all the people all the time. What you sow, you reap. It pertains to every single area of your life. Whatever area that you want blessing in, 
activate a sewing program with intentionality. And- yeah, that's not what this parable is saying at all. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus gave us the interpretation, and Jesus is saying none of the things that you're saying. You're lying. Area. So, for example, if you wanted more friends, then think it through. Say, okay, I want really good friends. I want to have loyal friends. I want to, to have more friends. Start sowing into friendship. Start sowing your life to be a good friend, to be a loyal friend. Yeah, that's not what this parable means at all. Make decrees, sowing the word into that aspect of your life. Yeah, decrees is not what that's about. It's about hearing the word of God. You know, if it's, if it's to have increased blessing in your gifting, maybe you've got a healing ministry or preaching ministry, evangelism, start sowing the word into that area and start sowing effort and activations into that area of your life. And I guarantee you, because God is not a man that ate your life, that you will have an activation of that, a return of that, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Yeah, you've totally twisted Jesus' parable to say something that it doesn't say at all. You are absolutely deceitfully lying to these people. The key is to sow your seed into good ground. That is the key. Mm. In this parable... So I wonder if the good ground would be your ministry, Patricia? They all sowed seed. They, 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 every, every scenario, seed was sown. But the earth was different. The situation that they sowed into was different. And so the ones that sowed on good ground, and that's what you want to make sure is that that ground is full of faith. And so I want to share with you specifically about an invitation that I want to give to you today because I have faith that every person that gets aligned with our ministry gets blessed. Mm, she has faith. So get aligned with her ministry min- means sending money to her ministry, which is apparently what Jesus was trying to teach you uh, in Mark 4, to send money to the good ground that is Patricia King's ministry. believe that because God spoke to me years ago. And I believe the word when he gave it. He says, everyone who blesses you will be blessed. And I know that he was not only talking about me personally, he was talking about, about our ministry. He says, everyone who blesses you will be blessed. And it was such a rhema word. Mm, sounds a lot like you hijacking the uh, promise given to Abraham. But God, this is an amazing promise. He said, yes, I give it to my children who are walking with me. I gave it to Abraham and I'm giving it to you. And he said, I want you to activate it so that I started blessing them because everyone has a sphere of influence. So at that time, my sphere of influence was small. So I took those that God had given me inside me, you know, my family members, my my friends and that, and those that worked with me in the ministry at that time. I said, I'm going to decree blessing over their lives because I have the power to bless Even in number six, it said the priest has the power to proclaim blessing. Yeah, really, you have this power to decree blessing. Why don't you just go to a third world nation and start decreeing blessing to everybody in that third world nation so that they no longer have to be in poverty? Over those that are connected to them. And so he says, I'm giving you the power to bless because you're blessed in order to be a blessing. And if you bless, then then you will be blessed. And everyone who blesses you will be blessed. So there was this spiral thing that was growing on. I thought, this is incredible. I am blessed so I can be a blessing. But then everyone who blesses me is going to be blessed. And then we'll just keep on blessing and blessing and blessing and growing exponentially in that. So I started putting it into practice by blessing every 
everyone that worked with me, everyone that was my friend, everyone. And I started noticing that they were growing in the revelation that they were receiving from God. They were growing in their family relationships. They were growing in their finances, uh, finances in opportunities and open doors, in skills. It was just amazing to watch what God was doing. Do you want Patricia King's blessing over your life? Send her some money and she'll bless you too so that you can increase in families and finances and things like that. Over the years, our ministry grew and grew and grew. And I noticed that many of our partners, for example, who partner with us financially, would write me emails after they partner and say, ever since I began partnering with XP, I have been so blessed. I got the job that I wanted. I got, you know, this. I got that. I got this. Oh, so if, if you want that, you know, that cushy job in the corner office, all you got to do is, you know, send some money to Patricia King and, you know, she'll bless you so that you can get that job. Through that breakthrough. And I thought, this is awesome. And God says, I told you, everyone who blesses you will be blessed because they're sowing into good ground. And I thought, wow, so I took it again. And yeah, because that's what Jesus meant when he was talking about the parable of the, you know, the different soils, right? Lord, you, you told me that they'd be blessed. So I started blessing my partners and blessing all of our staff, blessing our congregation, because all of them are giving their hearts unto the Lord and unto the purposes that this ministry is called to do. And I started watching them get blessed and blessed and more blessed. I mean, we get continual flow of testimonies coming in for the blessing of the Lord. Yeah, and all if you want to get in on this, all you got to do is make your check payable to xpministries.com. Send it to Patricia King, care of Phoenix and Arizona or something. Oh, man. Yeah, again, you know, I, I, I'm kind of in one of those moods where I'm just really frustrated. And one of the reasons I'm frustrated is because conservative Christian has become synonymous with gullible, dupe. And it's people like Patricia King. It's people like Jim Baker and Jonathan Kahn that have made that the case. The, no longer is it the scandal of the cross, because you rarely hear the cross from people like this. It's not the scandal of the cross that people are mocking us or you know, basically you know, laughing at us about. The thing that they're laughing about, you know, and basically mocking, you know, conservative Christians over is what should be considered laughable and mockable. Yeah, the complete and utter nonsense that's being passed off as conservative Christianity that isn't. And if you have half a brain at some modicum of biblical discernment, you should be able to spot this easily. But not only is it not spotted, it's believed and passed along. And of course, if if you know you're like me and you're questioning it or challenging it, you are considered the problem in Christianity. Yeah, that I think it kind of summarizes the problem itself in a nutshell. Moving along. Time for a Beth Moore update. That's right. Able to narcissize the passage of scripture faster than a hummingbird on three mochas from Starbucks, it's time for another episode of Twisting God's Word with Beth Moore. 
Today we're going to hear part two of her uh, series on kind of what I'm calling unity for the sake of unity. And it's a fascinating teaching because although Beth Moore is capable of looking up a Greek word in a lexicon, I don't think she knows how to actually translate Greek. Because sometimes it's not just the meaning of a word that's important, but also what verb tense the verbs are in. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we get there. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, specifically verse 22. But without any further ado, here's Beth Moore and part 2 of her uh, teaching on unity for the sake of unity. Like I said, I wanted to get this out before I had to take my uh, small trip next week. Here we go. 11 to 18 of Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But look at these next words. This is so beautiful in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Somebody say amen. Amen. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Push hold a moment. Now, in this context, he is talking about Jew and Gentile. He is talking about the people of the of, of the covenants of promise, um, the the, um, Jewish people uh, through the centuries um, when he called out Abraham and made and brought about a people uh, through his line. And then all of those who would come that might be from the other nations, but they would come to believe in the one true God um, of the Hebrew people. He's talking about them and the Gentiles who would come to know uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, that they have had the dividing wall of hostility. One of the parallels that's being drawn is this dividing wall uh, that was around the temple where uh, the Gentiles could not pass. They, I mean, literally, they even I mean, they could not pass for fear of death um, through that um, partition to go into where the others were because they were not one of them. But through Christ, the two have been made one. Through Christ, the dividing wall of hostility had been a broken down and through the cross he'd kill that hostility look at verse 17 and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father so then he says you are no longer strangers and aliens listen listen if the cross did that with jew and gentile are you telling me no 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 it's christ did it through the cross you got to keep these things sorted out that in the very body of christ we cannot understand that according to the scriptures we have been made one body 
And that in that unity, there is a glory that is meant to be displayed and a, a worldwide fame that is meant to be, um, to reverberate that can only come. Now notice th- what she did there. And this is very slick and very subtle. And this would require you to remember what she said in part one, which is why I didn't want too much more time to go on between part one and part two. The idea of the glory going out, where did she get that from? She got that from her Chronicles text. And so she's taking the Chronicles text about the type and shadow, the temple, and then saying that the the unity in the body of Christ is supposed to go out to all the world and, and be this glory. She's playing fast and loose and putting two things together that, yeah, exegetically is not going to work. From us coming together in a spirit of unity. Now, this word hostility got me over and over again. Did you notice that it says thereby killing the hostility? Did you notice that it said that he, um, in verse 14 that he, and 15, that he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility? That's right. He, Jesus, is the one who broke down the, the dividing wall of hostility. And this is important because in here, you're not doing anything, you're receiving what Christ has done. And let let me kind of reemphasize that point. In this portion of Ephesians, you're not doing anything, you're receiving the things that Christ has done. So let me let me read the text, and uh, I'll start with, we'll add a little bit of context, Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll start at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, verse 11, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the ha- uh, flesh, in the flesh by hands, remember that you, you were at that time separated from Christ, and you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace." And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure has joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now notice here, this is a unity created by Christ between Jew and Gentile, created by Christ through the cross, and now Jew and Gentile alike who are basically being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which means you know that statement right there, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that has to be on the clear and sound teaching of the apostles and prophets. You, you're not built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets if the person who's teaching you so-called Christian doctrine is twisting the teaching of the apostles and the prophets and teaching false doctrine. You're not built on the apostles' doctrine if you're not learning their doctrine correctly. That would be kind of an important thing. But I'll give you a preview now of where she's going to go with this and why it's important to not just know a Greek word and its lexical meaning, but also be able to read the Greek and understand the verbs in their tenses. Because here's the thing. When we talk about, you know, who's doing the building, who's the one building us into a holy temple? Christ is. And this comes out in spades, especially in Ephesians 2.22. And here's what it says. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Greek word there, sunoikodameo, uh, means to build together. But here's the important part. And the important part is, is that that is a second-person plural, present, passive, indicative verb. Uh-huh. Passive means... You ain't the one doing the building. You are the one being built uh-huh, into. So the idea here is, is that the you are also being built together means it's not your responsibility to build this temple. Christ is the one building it. You are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, and it's it's not your responsibility to build yourself into the temple. The fact that it's a passive verb means that you are being picked up as a stone and being put into the building that is this holy temple. That's the idea. You aren't you aren't responsible for building this temple. God is building it. You are being built into it, and you aren't doing the building. God is grabbing you and building you into it. That's an important thing here. But that's the part that she's going to miss because in talking about uh, her doctrine of unity, what is Beth Moore going to do? She's going to make it your responsibility to somehow create this unity of the temple thing. And this passage, by the way, is not teaching unity for the sake of unity because it's unity on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which means it has to be built upon the sound doctrine and correct handling and teaching of the apostles and prophets. We have to be hearing the apostles' doctrine correctly and the prophets' doctrine correctly. But here's Beth Moore to continue to explain. So you've kind of got the idea where we're going to go with this. And note she's able to look up in the lexicon, but she doesn't pay attention to verb tenses. And that's going to come into play here in Stinger 
as she continues on. Think about that word, hostility. I looked it up in the Greek, and in the Greek, that word hostility is coming from a word that means to be at enmity, and it's coming from a word that means enemy. In other words, hostility is how you would treat someone if they were your enemy. But what I want to suggest to you is that we're treating some of our own brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ like they are our enemies. Now, again, the issue is, are they teaching us God's word correctly or are they twisting God's word the way Beth Moore is right here? Because here's the thing. Scripture makes it clear what we are to be doing with those who are teaching false doctrine. Titus chapter 1 is another example of this. I gave you an example from 3 John um, uh, actually, sorry, Second John uh, on the last episode of Fighting for the Faith and also from the book of Romans, it makes it clear that you are to mark those who teach false doctrine. You are not to invite them into your church and give them the podium and give them their blessing because by doing so you partake in their false teaching. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes to a young, it's not pastor, it's Bishop Titus. Uh, he was the Bishop of Crete, and here's what he says to uh, to Titus. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That would be pastors. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for a pastor or an overseer, as God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. Instead, he has to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. And the reason for this is simple. Paul then continues, verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced, Paul says. Not just Paul. God says through Paul. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, notice the mock there, right? That was snark. Uh, he said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And then you think of the entire epistle of Jude, where the half-brother of Jesus warns Christians, is warning Christians to contend for the faith and to not put up with and to watch out for those who are twisting God's word. Uh, Jude, verse 3, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I would remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. 
and the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people, they they also, relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all, like unreasoning animals, uh, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, and they feast with you without fear, shepherds who feed only themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. They are wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Notice that Jude is not talking about people out there. He's talking about the false teachers in the church. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers. They're malcontents. They're following their own sinful desires. They're loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain an advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. They are worldly people and they are devoid of the Spirit. So here, the you know half-brother of Jesus doesn't seem to be about <clears throat> um, unity for the sake of unity. Uh, No, not at all. He makes it very clear that just because somebody says they're our brother doesn't mean they are. Just because somebody says they're our sister in Christ doesn't mean they are. If they are twisting God's word, falling into the error of Balaam or Cain, uh, or you you get the idea here, right? That that Scripture is clear. They're not only not our brothers— but the you know chains of gloomy darkness await them in hell. That's what's going on here. What's at stake is people's souls. Scripture doesn't teach unity for the sake of unity. But let's continue as Beth, Beth Moore now will really twist Ephesians chapter 2 and not rightly teach it to create her doctrine of unity for the sake of unity. We continue. Our own family members, when only together... I mean, we're being built together into this temple that parallels what we saw in 1 Chronicles 22, the grandeur of which would be beyond compare on planet Earth. And we've got all this hatred and hostility treating one of our own as an enemy. Now, let me tell you. Yeah, give me an example of what you mean by that. Um, What we're not talking about is, is respectful disagreement. 
um, there is a place, I believe strongly that there is a place for healthy debate in, in the body of believers and among theologians and scholars, uh, among uh, different um, uh, uh, parts of the body where they're coming together with understanding of interpretation of Scripture. I believe in all that. That's important. We cannot just not question. Questions are good. Uh, disagreements can be healthy because they can bring us to understanding. But let me tell you something. Hostility is completely out of place. Complete at no time, at no time is it a. Pr- this text doesn't say that hostility is out of place when it comes to those who are twisting God's word. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says of those who are teaching false doctrine that they are to be rebuked sharply. In the body of Christ, at no time do we treat our own family member with enmity. Thought it was interesting when I looked up the Greek word for hostility that the antonym, the opposite word for the Greek word for hostility, is agape. It's love. It's love. And the second word it gave as the um, synonym or as the antonym for the word um, that translates hostility was brotherly love. These are opposite terms. And I started thinking to myself, we are called to build. Now, stay with me here, and let me see if I can explain this well, because I saw it so clearly in, in my imagination as I was reading through it. Jesus has torn down the dividing wall between us. Uh, torn down the dividing wall between Jew and Greek. That's what Ephesians 2 says. But instead of us being over here building the temple... Uh, 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 uh. The verb is passive. We're not building the temple. We are being passive, built into the temple. Notice what she did there. She says, rather than us out there building the temple, we're not building this temple. We're being built into it. That's why I pointed out the fact that Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22 in particular makes it very clear, if you know the Greek tenses, that it is a passive tense. In him, you also are being built passive into a dwelling. She just switched it. She turned it into an active verb. We're building the temple. No, we're not. Jesus is building the temple. We are being built into the temple. I know it's subtle, and that's kind of the, 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 the duplicity here. It is a major shift by not paying attention to a very minor detail, what seems to be minor, and that is, is that the verb is passive, not active. She just made it active. We are trying to build back up the wall. Does that make any sense to anybody? Nope. You've twisted God's word. We are literally using our life, blood, and energy so often in the body of believers to rebuild a wall of hostility that the cross of Jesus Christ killed. Misapplication. The the thing that Jesus tore down, the wall of hostility, was the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Anybody getting that with me? We got Nope. All this building we're supposed to be doing over here. No, 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 no. We're not doing the building. Christ is the, you know, the verb there for building is passive, not active. But instead of building the temple, we're trying to build back the wall that was crushed and crumbled by the cross of Christ. And it is, it's tragedy. It's tragedy. 
And it was, it's so ironic that this is where our energies are so often going. The enormous price Jesus paid to kill hostility. And we are trying to give it CPR. Anybody know what I'm saying? No, I don't. Because what you're saying doesn't square with what the text actually says. You're not paying attention to the details of the text. You're not exegeting it correctly, and you're drawing an incorrect application that ignores other clear passages that teach us what to do with those who teach false doctrine. Maybe not we in this room, but we've seen it. All of us have seen it. We've seen it all over the body of Christ. And the thing about it, that with social media, you might say to me, it's always been true. Of course, it's always been true. But listen, we have never been on the public display that we are now before the rest of the globe because they can watch us be hateful to one another. Uh, Now, hold on a second. This is a popular evangelical argument. How dare you critique Joel Osteen or say that the Shemitahs are not true or question Jim Baker? Don't you know the world is watching? Yeah, I, I know the world is watching. And I would say this, the world knows perfectly well that there is a bunch of people in, within Christianity that are absolutely making merchandise of Christians, and Christians say nothing about it. And you know what they do? They mock us for it, rightly so. We're not being mocked for believing in Jesus. We're being mocked for putting up with the charlatans. And you think of that, that, uh, you know, that comedy guy who did the, uh, the expose on the, uh, the televangelist a few weeks ago from HBO. That thing went viral. And the thing is, is that he was doing the job that Christians aren't, are supposed to be doing. So, yeah, the world is watching all right, and they're wondering why is it you're putting up with these charlatans who are teaching absolute nonsense? Why the world would they be drawn to an environment where we are this hateful? When they're in a- Why on earth would pagans be drawn to an environment where, the, where we are utterly gullible? Out in the world does not treat them as poorly as sometimes our own family member in the body of Christ will treat us. It's just very, very convicting to me to see how much time we're given to hostility instead of the building of the temple itself. There's this gorgeous scripture. Again, the verbs for the building of the temple are passive. We ain't doing the building. God is. Jot down the address if you want to. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. Um, uh, some um, months ago, I committed it to memory, and I say it over and over again because I just love it. It says this. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. I love that. because it- Yeah, this is talking about the use of spiritual gifts for the edification of the church, the building up of the church. These would be the teaching gifts of the Spirit. But me, I want manifestations of the Spirit. 
I want us to come together in our churches and in our in our events where um, Christ is exalted and where we worship and praise and where we get into his word and, and bring it forth um, in the authority um, with which he inspired it. I love that kind of environment. I want the spirit to be manifest among us and in lives that have been dramatically delivered and, and captives being set free and salvation come into the lost and hearts and lives being put back together. I want manifestations of the spirit. But 1 Corinthians 14, 12 says, listen, it, since you're eager for manifestations of the spirit, I'll tell you how to do it. Strive to excel in building up the church. What would happen if we decided this is where we wanted to strive to excel? Now, I want to be a builder. I don't want to be somebody that tears down. Uh, I want to be a builder, but don't want to be. See, again, she's even misusing this text from 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 is talking about the use of spiritual gifts. It's not talking about how to deal with somebody who is twisting God's word and teaching a false gospel. And again, that doesn't mean we don't disagree. It doesn't mean we don't confront. It doesn't mean we don't go speak the truth in love. But it means as we do it, we do it with respect as fellow family members, and we don't tear one another apart. Anybody stepping in that with me? Because let me tell you something, hostility has no place in the body of Christ. Again, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says about the false teachers, they are to be rebuked sharply. It is not of God. Luke 19, 41 through 44. Now, this is going to be in reference to Herod's temple, uh, which was, of course, the temple in the time when Christ walked in flesh and blood on this earth. So he says in Luke um, 19, verse 41, And when he, this is Christ, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Verse 44 and tear you down to the ground. Everybody say tear you down to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation listen carefully because that wording is so important he's giving um, a prophetic word to them he said this is what's going to happen with this temple because he's coming down that mountain he's looking straight at it all this gorgeous gorgeous majesty they said with Herod's temple that with um, the, the coloring of it that when that sun would come up and hit it. I mean, it would be a brilliance that would almost be blinding. So this gorgeous, gorgeous building, and he's looking straight across at it. And he just begins weeping and weeping, going, do you not understand that because you missed the time of your vis visitation, that this will be taken from you? And a stone will not be left on another. Let me read that to you again. It says in verse 44, because this is so important, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Stick with me here. Stick with me. Think, think really carefully about this. That a few decades later, this happened exactly like Jesus prophesied that it would in AD 70. And, and so we're told the stones didn't just like disintegrate into thin air. What happened to them? Well, they fell apart. 
They were useless because they were not built together. A temple, see, once the... The temple was torn apart stone by stone by the Roman soldiers so that they could get the gold that had melted and seeped in between the cracks in the stones. And, and the, the temple itself lays in a ruin heap off to one side of the temple mount. Stones fall apart. The building is of no further use for the gathering place that it was purposed. Only together did the stones build anything that God could dwell within. Is that is that sticking with everybody? So see, the big, big, big phrase in Ephesians 2.22 is that you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are being built together. Yeah, that's right. Passive verb, being built. We're not doing the building. That's active. Passive, being built. That phrase. We are being built together. See, scattered stones don't build anything. When you and I, when, when we as the people of God on this globe are just scattered stones, we're all just doing our own thing. Stones don't do anything. Stones have to be built into things. Stones don't have arms. Stones don't have legs. When it's using the metaphor of us being built into and you're, they're liking us to stones... That means we ain't doing the building. We're just the materials that are being used for the building itself. Somebody else is doing the building, which is why Ephesians 2.22, the verb is passive, not active. We're all just getting more and more detached, uh, getting further and further from body of believers because one thing, we can't find a perfect one. It all seems like they're hypocrites. We don't like this about them or we don't like that about them. In any way, I can get all my lessons or I can get all my sermons on my phone now. All these reasons why we could just be scattered stones. But the more scattered we are, all we call, all a scattered stone causes people to do is stumble over it. That's what the world is doing. Yeah, those stones, I wish they would stop scattering themselves. We are so many scattered stones that the world is just stumbling over us going, who would want to be part of them? Yeah, that's not correct. Again, Scripture tells us how to deal with false teachers. We are to rebuke them. We are to mark them. We are to avoid them. You know, that we are also to warn people about them the way the apostles did. Yeah, she's completely ignoring all of the clear texts that teach us what to do with false teachers, and she's twisting these biblical texts and then creating this false narrative, you know, that yeah, as if somehow stones are actively building themselves in the temple when it says that they're this is done passively because the verbs are passive. Agreeing with me on this? Uh, listen, we have a name for stones that are erected separately in the same field, and it is called a cemetery. Anybody? Because that's what happens if you've got one field that has a whole lot of stones, but they're not together. Then they're all out. Then what you've got there is a cemetery. And that's what happens is that we're just a dead. I mean, we're alive in Christ. But as far as our impact is concerned, a living, breathing. This is totally a lie. And so many evangelicals buy into this. Oh, if you correct a false teacher, if you rebuke a false teacher, if you say something bad about something uh, uh, that uh, T.D. Jakes said or Beth Moore said or uh, Joyce Meyer said, oh, you're, you're destroying our witness. No passage of Scripture says that 
especially Ephesians 2. Powerful impact of the Holy Spirit among us on this planet. We just become dead in our scattering, a stumbling um, stone. We become a cemetery. If this is true, then why is it she's twisted every text she's touched? I just want you to think about this one thing. If this is true, then why is it that in order to get to this doctrine, she's had to twist every single biblical text that she's touched? Think about that. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're going to end the week off with a good sermon by a seminary student. Yeah, that's right. He's asked me to review his sermon. Poor guy. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. The internet and the countless technologies around us, such as smartphones, tablets, PCs, cameras, video games, have become quintessential parts of our daily lives. In fact, our broadcast might be streaming on your phone right now. Communication and access to information has advanced faster than our ability to manage it responsibly. Texting and email are but two small examples of how technology has provided the means necessary to communicate over long distances, while at the same time giving people the ability to hide behind shadowy anonymity. By its very nature, technology is a double-edged sword. It provides the immediacy we desire and need, yet it also provides gateways for isolation from proper supervision. As adults, we can govern our own actions and submit to others for accountability. Or not. But how good are we at modeling or overseeing technology in the hands of children? Do our children have more knowledge about technology than we do? Do we choose to trust our children with such powerful tools without any oversight? Many people nowadays are aware of the dangers of the internet, such as cyberbullying, sexting, predators, stalking, trolling, video game addiction, pornography, etc., etc., but simple awareness is rarely met with measures of protection, appropriate oversight, or engaging communication. Typically, parents are trusting and simply managing from crisis to crisis because they don't know where to start or what to do in the first place. The Parentum was created as a centralized destination to provide parents information on the available security tools for all internet-connected devices. We provide educational instructions on how to protect families from technological immersion and information on a host of potential life-altering risks born from the dangerous elements of the internet. The Parent Dome's mission is to empower parents to be actively aware and engage stewards of technology for their children. Technology advances daily, and those seeking to exploit it with the intent to cause harm maintains that same pace. At the Parent Dome, we continually update our website in order to properly address the changing needs of parents and families to better defend them against predatory exploits. Please visit us at www.parentdome.com for further information. Thank you. 
hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end the week off with a good sermon. This is from a seminary student who took a recent trip to Wisconsin. I'll give you the details here in a second. And this seminary student also happens to work for Grace to You. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon was delivered at um, the First Baptist Church of Milltown, Wisconsin, by seminary student Cameron Butel. And uh, Cameron works for Grace to You, met him at uh, Reformation Montana, and he forwarded along this sermon that he recently delivered. And it's entitled, hang on a second, let me pull this up. It's entitled, God Defines God. And what Cameron does in this sermon, it is a topical sermon, and it's addressing the dangers and ideas of post-modernity and, and postmodern theology. And so we're going to take a listen and uh, see how Cameron does. Poor guy, I hope... <laughs> I hope he survives the experience. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is the sermon delivered by Cameron entitled, God Defines God. Here we go. Very thankful. We made this trip across the country. My, my dear wife wanted to see some stuff they call grass. And we traveled across and there's plenty of it in Wisconsin. So we're having a Great time staying with the Johansson missionaries. Now, keep in mind, Cameron, I believe, lives in Southern California where they're, they're having a drought. No one's allowed to have grass right now. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they, they've lost sight of the stuff called grass. Weird. We have lots of it here in North Dakota. Missionaries to a whole bunch of kids in their house and missionaries to my children now as, as well and ministering to us and Ed also um, moonlights as a tractor coach as well for my son. So we're having, a, we're having a great time. And it's wonderful as a believer. Probably the most wonderful thing this side of eternity is the gift of fellow believers and fellowship with other believers, isn't it? To know that I can travel uh, 2,000 miles away from where we live and, and find family waiting for us there. It, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And you know, that, that's, that's the local church is, is so important because that is where, you know, we are called to examine ourselves to see that we are in the faith. And how will we know that we are his disciples by our love for one another? And how will we know that unless we are involved and, and enmeshed in the lives of the local church where, where we find ourselves? So I, I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful to be here and it's, it's great to be among other believers on the other side of the country. As I mentioned before, I'm glad I came during the green winter rather than the white winter. But um, at least um, in the white winter, I guess you use the heaters to keep things warm. But I'm promised that it's, it's going to get a bit warmer. 
Um, your pastor, um, Pastor Milky, he actually asked me to talk about uh, tonight postmodernism and um, the emergent church and um, the effects that it's had. And as I was thinking about that, pondering about that, praying about that, uh, I, I realized that really what, and I want to preach out of a text today that, that really addresses that central issue, and that is the issue of who is God. Because at its heart, postmodernism, the emergent church, and other things, as you'll see, and I'll explain more about that, is really idolatry. It's really, you know, in the beginning, God created man in his image. And ever since then, man has been trying to make a God in his image. And the emergent church and postmodernism is just one of many of those things. There's been a book out. Now, I'm sure, I'm pretty confident that few people, if any, would have seen this book. But in regular mainstream Christian bookstores, evangelical, um, very popular book, in recent years, been a book called The Shack. Who's heard of that book? The Shack. And, and that is, again, um, well, the synopsis of my review of that book would be simply to say that God is not an overweight black woman. I mean, is it, is it that difficult? I hate that book. You know, I hate that book. I can't believe that people read that book and they say to me, but it helps me understand the Trinity. And then I thought to myself, you know what? Maybe I could write a book about William P. Young. You know, because William P. Young, when people complain about the book, he says, it's just fiction, okay? Lighten up. It's fiction. I thought, I could write a book about William P. Young. I could write a book about his terrible relationship with his monstrous father. Now, I've never met his father. I don't know who he is, but, but hey, it's just fiction, and it helps people to understand. Yeah, I mean, we, of course that's ludicrous. That, that would be... Okay, so let me, let me pause right there and offer just a little bit of constructive criticism. The idea here is that in all of our sermons, including topical sermons, we really want God's Word to be in the driver's seat. So, uh, Cameron, my suggestion you know, for you know, is sorting out and ordering uh, your sermon... Uh, you started off well with your kind of your pre-thoughts, and and I understand you you know you were being gracious to your host and everything like that. No problem with that. And you made this great statement that you know that at the core of uh, what we're dealing with with postmodernity is really the sin of idolatry. Great thing, you know, to you know kind of set the table, and and from there you probably should have gone into the text that you're going to be preaching from. And then use the shack as an example of of, uh, of idolatry. I know you were using it as an example because you, your pre thought was, well, we're dealing with idolatry, people making a god, their own god, and the shack is an is is a um, is an example of that. You know, keep your your pre thoughts, you know, your opening statements brief. Let the text be in the driver's seat at least. You know, from you know, as close to the beginning of the sermon as possible, and then develop your thoughts from there. And so the idea is, is I think you developed the idea. You brought in the shack a little prematurely. You set the table right regarding idolatry. You should have circled back and then used the shack as an example of idolatry. Uh, you know, because you know the body of the sermon is the place to do that, not in the opening statements. Just, just a, you know, a little bit of a suggestion there as far as how you sort things out. But we continue. 
insulting to do something like that. And that's exactly what William P. Young has done with his book. The text we want to look to today, if you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 to 8. And we want to look at a passage because the title of, the title of this message is that God, God declares, defines and demonstrates who he is. Nobody else gets to do that. If anyone tries to do that, red flag. Look out. Is God alone who does that? And we have to we have to understand that, we have to submit to that, and we have to be willing to listen to what God says. You know, um, now this is true, and at this point you're preaching law. So it, you know, it, I, and it's actually biblical law. Let's let's see how then the solution plays out in the sermon to see if the gospel is brought to bear for those who are, you know, guilty of not submitting to God's law regarding having no other gods, and they define God themselves rather than let God define Himself. Let's continue. The analogy, and as I'm going to talk about postmodernism, and, and just in summary. To use a baseball analogy would be like um, in going through history up until about a hundred years after the Reformation, at, at least at that time, the pre they call that the pre-modern era, pre-modern, and and in, they they um, that was basically we submitted to God as He revealed Himself. In other words, God has revealed Himself, and that's how it is. You know, um, so some of you may have seen the bumper sticker. You know. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Have you ever seen that bumper sticker? I mean, in California, I find myself behind cars a lot. <laughs> and I've seen that sticker, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, really, God said it, and that settles it, whether you believe it or not. Amen. And that's how the pre-modern understood things. God has spoken in his word, that's how it is. And that's how it is. But modernism started to rise up in the 17th century and 18th century, which was the idea that, you know, we um, empiricism, research, whereas science was started to, science was started really to, to learn about God, the Creator. It then became a religion in itself, with, with where they tried to submit God to their agenda. And so the modernist was more: what's the data? What's the research? Let's examine it. And, and so the pre-modernist in, on the baseball field, you know, if he was the catcher on the baseball field, the pre-modernist, he basically called the pitchers as the pitcher said what he was sending down. The author told him how it was. The modernist calls it as he sees it. He sees the pitch coming, he calls it as he sees it. And um, the post-modernist, well, he sees it as he calls it. You get what I'm saying? In other words, postmodernism really is a form of idolatry. It's about defining things how you see them. Okay, that's what William P. Young was doing in his book. And that's what the postmodernist does. He, he wants to interpret the world through the lens of his own preference. And, and it's idolatry and it's futile. It's futile. And you know what? In a sense, they know that because postmodern philosophers, they'll sit around their little table 
and they'll say, well, there is no absolute truth, which is a very absolute statement to make. But they'll sit around their little postmodern table and talk about, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. Good for you. You know, I had someone say that the other day, well, I'm a preacher. Well, good for you. I said, well, not really, because if I'm wrong, I've wasted my life. And if I'm right, you're going to hell. What's good about that? And that might seem a bit harsh, but we need to wake up to these things. This is, we have a motto at my seminary. We, pre, we um, train men as if lives depend on it. I believe we should preach as if lives depend on it. And preaching shouldn't just be confined to this building. But the postmodernist, it is, it's really, it's just idolatry. They're making a God to suit themselves. You know, people say, my God would never send anyone to hell. Well, that's right. He wouldn't. Still haven't heard the text yet. You've got to let the text be in the driver's seat. What's that? Already getting a strong response to my preaching. That's, that's encouraging. <laughs> so as we turn to our text today... Well, see, Moses understood how it really is that God defines who he is. Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 to 8. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Now, great text, by the way. Great text because it's it's God's self-revelation. I mean, you know, Moses was there to witness it, and we get this wonderful text. Uh, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Uh, it, the text actually in the Hebrew reads long of nose, but um, yeah, great text. You, it, you, you, I mean, the gospel is like just, you know, within reach here. So let's see what he does with it. In this passage, as I said before, God declares, he defines, and he demonstrates who he is regarding his love forgiveness, and justice. And in the first part, in verses 5 to, the first, to halfway through verse 6, we see and God declaring who he is. The first one, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, that's Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed. God is declaring who he is. God speaks on his own behalf concerning who he is and what he is like. He doesn't need William P. Young's help. He doesn't need my help. He doesn't need people who begin their sentences with, to me, God is like this. Beware of that. Idolaters usually begin sentences with the words, to me. And when they say that, you need to say the biggest problem with what you just said is the first two words. God declares 
who he is. And in this situation in Exodus 34, many of you will be familiar, but we, we can go back a bit and in, um, in chapter 31, God, <coughs> excuse me, God had given Moses the law engraved in stone. You don't need to jump there for the sake of speed, but if you want to, Exodus um, 31, 18, God gave the law to Moses. And while waiting for, where were the Israelites? Well, God was um, giving Moses the law. They were down at the bottom of the mountain waiting, weren't they? And they indulged in gross idolatry. So here we see the beginning of the emergent church. Now we Aaron fashions a golden calf in chapter 32. And, and many of us who are parents, we know this, this bizarre conversation we have with our children where all of a sudden in my house, basically everything goes quiet. And that's, that's the calm before the storm when the kids are in their room and something's going on. And we, we, we walked into the bathroom the other day and one of our children had basically emptied nearly every single container into the ba- in the bathroom, either onto the floor or into the basin. And the smell was unbelievable. But you know the scenario when something like that has happened and the children know they're in trouble and it's battle stations and you come into the room and they, you say, what just happened? And it's like, I don't know. I don't know. It, this just happened. And you see Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees Aaron. And Aaron says to him, Moses, what is this gold? And Aaron says, look, they just gave me this gold and then I put it in the fire and this cow came out. I mean, it's like it doesn't end, does it? It just doesn't end. We, we, we want to justify, we want to hide, we want to um, accommodate our idolatry. And it's interesting, isn't it, too, that I used to wonder those first two commandments, you know, the first commandment that, that God is supreme and the second commandment concerning idolatry. And I thought, well, doesn't the first commandment make the second redundant? You know, if, if we are to worship God alone, then why would you have a warning, warning about idolatry as well? Well, what they had done, they had made their own image of the God who had led them out of Egypt. And that really is... Um, the idolatry that goes on in, in Catholic churches today as well, where you see images of crucifixes, images and pictures of things. God says, don't do that. And they had done that. They had made it. And God's wrath burnt hot against his idolatry. God hates... Now, like- I'm going to make a note here. I'm going to make a note here. And this is something that uh, is one of the major differences between uh, those who are come from the Reformed stream of the Reformation and those who come from the uh, uh, Lutheran stream of the Reformation. And this is an argument that actually doesn't begin in the Reformation. It goes way back, way back. And the question has to do with... Uh, you know things like church art. Uh, you know, can you you create a depiction of Jesus? You know, let me give you an example. Uh, when you see a nativity scene and there's the baby Jesus in the manger, is that what uh, what the uh, the Book of Exodus forbids? The creation of a depiction of the baby Jesus, either in watercolor, paint, or wood. 
Um, and the Lutherans say no. They, you know, the uh, the prohibition, it, you know, regarding the uh, the images is the worship of them, because the same God who made. Uh, who who gave the command, you know, not to to not make graven images and bow down to them, also gave the command to Moses to make a graven image, and the graven image was the uh, the bronze serpent in the book of Numbers, and you know all those who were bit by a fiery serpent, they can look to that, and if they, uh, you know, if they they look to it, they would be healed if they were bit by a snake. So it's not the it's not the it's not a blanket prohibition of graven images. It's a it's a prohibition of the creation of images for the purposes of worshiping that image. Now later in the history of Israel, that same serpent, that same gold, you know, a bronze serpent that God had commanded Moses to have fashioned, um, ends up being worshipped as if it were a deity. Um, and uh, as a result of it, God has to order somebody to go and destroy that thing. And so you you find that in also the uh, the history of Israel. Now this is one of the more interesting differences between the Lutheran stream of the Reformation as opposed to the uh, Reformed stream of the Reformation. And I, I think it's worth noting here that uh, the Lutherans view it differently, and you know f- you know we we view Scripture differently on these things. We don't have a blanket prohibition against depictions of Jesus's life, death, birth, you know. Uh, you know, resurrection, you know, all of that. And, you know, we don't, we don't see a, a prohibition in Scripture against that. What we do see is the prohibition of the creation of, an, of a graven image for the purpose of worshiping it as if it were a deity. That, that's what, how we understand that. But we continue now with uh, Cameron's sermon. He is jealous for his glory and for him defining who he is. He will not be um, interpreted in any other way than as he declares. And he, his wrath burned hot against Israel's idolatry, and he was set on their utter destruction. And in chapter 32, verses 11 to 14, Moses interceded on behalf of Israel for the sake of God's name. And it's interesting, it's interesting that Moses in the midst of a lot of problems. And when we have problems, you know, it's our prayers often are God fix the problem. You know, that's, that's that we have a tendency to pray. And of course, prayer is the desperate refuge of people who are right at the end of themselves, isn't it? And Moses definitely could have um, prayed for um, God to fix the problems. You know, God help me out. There's, we got we got problems going on all the time out here in the wilderness. I mean, it's endless, and my patience is wearing so thin. But it's interesting that in um, after Moses interceded in Exodus thirty two eleven fourteen, he went on in chapter thirty three. Um, instead of instead of asking for a God to fix the problems, he 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 said, "Please show me your glory." He asked God to show him his glory. He wanted God to reveal himself. Moses wanted God to reveal himself to him. He wanted to know, God, how are you? What are you like? Show me your glory. That's what he wanted. And you know what? That is, that is the mark of, 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 of true conversion and true belief is that we don't seek God's hand, but we seek his face. 
we want to know him. And this is eternal life. Didn't Jesus say this is eternal life, that you might know me? That they might know you. And so I hope and pray that your salvation and your Christian walk and your understanding and what you long for is not just escape from the wrath of God and escape from the judgment that's coming, but also to know him, to see him, to be with him. That is eternal life. And and Moses desired that. And God's glory is dangerous. God is so majestic and holy that it is deadly dangerous dangerous to be near him. So God informed Moses of the impossibility of him ever surviving a full frontal encounter. And um, I can remember having a charismatic background that um, remember witnessing these things they called these laughing revivals where people would encounter God and laugh. And I'm, I was like, but people think they're going to die when they see God in the Bible. And people are repenting and confessing sin. I and, and, and that was a key factor in me coming out of the charismatic movement, was seeing that, that this is not an encounter with the living God. There is, there is no fear. There is no um, repentance of sin. They think this is funny. This is some joke. What God are they encountering? And because God is so holy and it's dangerous, the holiness of God is exceedingly dangerous. You know, people think that the God of the Old Testament, you know, is, is scary. Well, I mean, he was striking people dead in the New Testament. Someone tried to argue with me the other day that God can't send sickness. I said, he kills people. And you want to argue with me about whether he can send sickness or not. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the author of Hebrews says. And God mercifully hid Moses in the cleft of a rock. And that's where we find ourselves in this passage in Exodus. God concealed much of his glory in order that Moses might just see the edges of his glory. And Moses didn't start with, to me, God is like this, did he? God spoke and Moses listened. That's a, that's a good pattern to follow in coming to know God. <laughs> he speaks to us through his word. Are you listening to him? Are you listening to what he says? Are you trying to fashion a God in your own image that accommodates your preferences, your, your sinful preferences? No. That's, that's just self-delusion. God defines who he is. So he declares who he is, as we saw in verses 5, 6, and then we see in the second part of verse 6, we see that God defines who he is. God defines who he is. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. So God is saying, this is what I'm like. Merciful, gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. The attributes God chose to define to Moses directly applied to the situation Israel were in. They needed a God who was merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You know, people, what's the popular questions, the objections? I know, I know Dan was telling me today. Okay, I'm going to make a slight, make a note here. God didn't reveal himself this way because they, they necessarily needed this. 
although they did, and we do too. This is God revealing himself because this is what God is like, if you would. And um, so you know, we're getting – you, you got to be careful that you know it doesn't sound like God is somehow like a chameleon. He'll uh, reveal himself according to your need, although he does – you, you got to be careful in how you state it so that you don't, you know, so that, you know, God's attributes are not chameleonic, but they're eternal. So you know, just a little note there. You got to be careful how you pitch these things. Common question. How can a loving God send people to hell? You know, we have that question. We can have the question. Um, what about people who never hear the gospel? You know, what, why, why doesn't God deal with all the evil in the world? And the problem with all those questions is they're the wrong question. They're the wrong question. The real question is, you know, how is God patient? How is he long-suffering? How does he put up with people? Because when we've read through the Old Testament, I think we, Ed and I were talking about, we all come to a point, some such was, how does God put up with these Israelites? How does he put up with them? And then a bit further along the track, you have the point and go, oh, Oh, I'm just like the Israelites. <laughs> That's the mystery. And we can help people with those questions by saying, hang on, you know what? Let me help you understand the right question you should be asking. Is that why is God merciful when I'm so sinful? Why does he put up with me? How does he do that? God is that way because he said so. And he gets to define who he is. There's modern idolatry, as I said, in many modern movements today. Roman Catholicism, I mentioned. Again, little tweak. God is that way because that is how God is, and He has said so. Little, little tweak on it. You got, you, you know, God's attributes are eternal and immutable. So we, you know, that's how God is, and because He has declared this to be so, He is declaring what He is existentially, you know, ontologically, if you, if you would. You know, just a little tweak. ...ship gospel where they've invented a God who doesn't demand repentance from sin. Um, charismatic, which is experience-driven based on our feelings, not on God's word. The prosperity gospel where they've fashioned a God who wants to make you rich and have your best life now. My pastor said to... Uh, us at the seminary a lot longer. The only people who have their best life now are people who are going to hell. Yeah. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. I don't want my best life now. If this is it, and I'm, I'm 46 now. So, I'm, you know, it's downhill. And it's, and it's a sobering thing. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a note here. And that is, is that, uh, Cameron, as I listen to your sermon, you make a lot of true statements. And they are loosely and that and that's that's kind of the issue they're loosely connected to what you're talking about or what's revealed in the text what would have been stronger in the sermon would be to build a strong solid foundation exegetically from the text really sit down and flesh out what the text is saying and and what it means and the implications of what God has revealed about himself and then launched into, and let's talk about now how post-modernity comes after or denies or is in contradiction to what God has revealed about himself in this text. 
so that would have been a, a, a better way of approaching it. And what we have in this sermon, although everything you're saying is true, what's missing is, um, at least mentally, without me being able to see the outline, um, I'm having a difficult time seeing how all of the different things actually hang together from the text that you're preaching from. So um, the, the idea here is you, you kind of need to move a few things around so that you have a, a more solid base from which to make these other statements that you're making that are true, and they are loosely connected to what you're talking about in the text, and they are definitely connected to the overall theme that you're going after because you're addressing idolatry. Um, and that would help you then because uh, because you're kind of going back and forth without building that solid foundation – you're in a sense mixing. You, you got gospel elements and law elements, and they're kind of bleeding into each other, which uh, can cause a little bit of confusion. We continue. It's that point in life, isn't it? Because by the time you reach that point, I've lived long enough now to see men who were my age when I was a kid actually grow old. And I know that's what's in front of me. And it's good to be reminded of that, that, that my hope should not be in this life. You know, because this life is passing and something is wrong. The fact that we get older, the fact that there is sickness, all of these things are big red lights God has given to us in the world to say, things are not as they should be. Something went wrong in the garden when the first postmodernist appeared. You know, remember the first postmodernist? He said, did God really say? You shall not eat from the tree. Did God really say that? Questions. Postmodernists love questions. They're not interested in answers. They want questions. And, and, so- and here's where an example would actually be helpful. Um, you know, something from Brian McLaren or Tony Jones or Doug Paget. You know, that, that uh, are perfectly exemplify. You know the the postmodern approach to de- language deconstruction stuff like that, and then hooking it into uh, the serpent in the uh, Garden of Eden. I think that would be a, str- uh, a stronger way to do it. Gospels, the liberation gospel, which is really basically Marxism, a form of Marxism, and the social gospel, you know, um, basically a gospel based on feeding the hungry, which, which is not a wrong thing, but it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. And Jesus was aware of that. We can remember when... Um, the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and John was in prison. And when Jesus found out John was in prison, Jesus didn't jump up and go, oh no, oh no, he's in prison. Quick, let's organize a protest. Let's man the picket lines. Let's protest. Let's march around the prison. No, he knew he was on a divine timetable and John was too. And he was facing his own imminent death. He was concerned with higher things. He was concerned with eternal matters. Praise God for that. You know, God, God defines who he is and we need to stick to his blueprint. We need to stick to his blueprint concerning who he is and, and shun those things that fashion the other way and help those people. Help these people who are caught up in these things to understand that and to see that. And that is what the emergent church has been. Really, it has been a movement of defining God 
on their own terms. Now, you live in Wisconsin. I understand is the Mississippi runs between you and Minnesota. Is that right? Is the Mississippi the border? Yeah, because there's something strange in the water on the Minnesota side. Okay, because lots of... There's a lot of kooks that have been running around in Minneapolis. Right? This is where the emergent church... Really, this is the hotbed of the emergent movement. So people like Brian McLaren and Tony Jones, Rob Bell in Michigan on the other side. So you're sort of like, you're surrounded here. In In Wisconsin, you're surrounded by this, hey? And um, some of these guys, you know, just to see, they, they love uncertainty. They love trying to redefine God. You know, um, was it Brian McLaren concerning certainty? You know, they hate the idea of certainty. Brian McLaren said, um, and this is a quote, Brian McLaren, the founder of this movement, he said, if I seem to show too little respect for your opinions or thought, be assured I have equal doubts about my own. And I don't mind if you think I'm wrong. I'm sure I am wrong about many things, although I'm not sure exactly which things I'm wrong about. I'm even sure I'm wrong about what I think I'm right about in at least some cases. So wherever you think I'm wrong, you could be right. (laughs) This is like, um, God is not the author of confusion, but Brian McLaren may be a strong candidate for that trophy. So this is about celebrating down. And I think that is the hermeneutic of humility. Well, we don't know. We're not sure. And it's, it's arrogant. Only the arrogant preach with certainty. Be glad, folks, that you have a pastor who, who studies God's word and then comes up and preaches with authority as if God is speaking. That's true humility. Because that is the person who's listening to what God is saying and telling you that. Okay? The, hum- the hermeneutic of arrogance is the one that says... Well, nobody really knows, and we can't be certain about anything. And he's very certain about that uncertainty. Okay, um, there's uh, was it um, Rob Bell? He he described basically he he um he emphasised he fashioned a God who has faith in us. He said, "I've been told I need to believe in Jesus, which is a good thing." But what? A, and you, you like the little caveat, which is a good thing, very patronizing. You know, they like to say, oh, yeah, it's about eternal life. But is that all? These are people who do not marvel. They do not join with the hymn, the Wesley, who said, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? How can it be? They marveled at that. These guys, they just go, is that it? Eternal life? Is that all? Forgiveness of sins? These guys need to get downwind of themselves for a while. Don't they? That they might be more thankful for the forgiveness of God. But this is Rob Bell's God is a God who um, has faith in Him. God has faith in us. His argument was that God left the Great Commission in the. Okay, note, you heard something pertaining to the forgiveness of sins, but it wasn't a proclamation of the gospel. Um, it was instead you know, kind of, a, a, in a sense, a backhanded side note. We need to hear the gospel clear. And when you're preaching God's law, you know, and convicting people of idolatry, you gotta let the uh, the the fires of of Sinai really roll. Let there be thunder, peals of lightning, 
and deal with the consequences of idolatry. Give clear examples of how this is idolatry. Dig into the biblical text and basically make it clear. God's word says that those who do these things, who make their own gods, that their gods cannot save them. And those who persist in this sin against God, first table of the law, will find themselves on the last day thrown into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels if they if they do not repent and are forgiven by what Christ has done. So the idea here is is that making generic truthful statements although nothing that you know nothing in your law preaching is is incorrect it's the issue is is that your horses aren't all pulling together they don't seem like they're part of a team heading at, at you know in the same direction towards the same destination and as a result of it you know we've you know this horse makes an appearance and yeah that's a lovely horse and then this horse makes an appearance let's get all the horses on the same team pulling in the same direction so that this uh, the sermon has a feeling that it's heading towards a particular destination of the disciples and he says that's proof that god has faith in man He just turned the gospel completely upside down. But is that really the case? Did Jesus leave it, the Great Commission, in the hands of disciples because he had faith in man? What did he tell them to do before they went out into the world? He told them to wait. Who for? Holy Spirit. Why? Because they can't do it without him. (laughs) It's not faith in man. That's saying... You know, he's going away and his omnipresent spirit would inhabit his people and empower them to do that. He knows, you know, I used to have this emergent guy who would write to me emails and he would sign off his emails with, you know, we do what's possible, God does what's impossible. And I would always write back to him and sign off with, without me you can do nothing. Because that's the case, really, we cannot do anything. And God derives the greatest glory from people who are wholly dependent on him. What a miracle. I know that God delights in saving the worst of sinners. I know that. He saved me. Uh, again, the gospel is there, but it's di- it, it's it, you haven't proclaimed it yet. You've made statements that are gospel truth, but you're not it's that that's different than actually preaching and proclaiming the gospel. So we see that at T- Tony Jones, another one. You know, I come, I've come to reject the notion of original sin. I consider it neither biblically, philosophically, nor scientifically tenable. Interesting that, again, he's just defining things on his own terms because he doesn't like it. I find a doctrine I don't like, I'll dispense with it. And uh, I know that is not what goes on here, but we need to be aware of this because our kids are going to go off into college and they need to be ready for this and be ready to contend for the once for all delivered faith and understand these things that that God has answers and we have answers for these questions and a lot of them really primarily are rooted in a right understanding of man and a right understanding of God and in our text we've been looking at Moses is getting the right understanding from God from God himself the author. So we see that we've seen there that God declares who he is, he defines who he is, and thirdly, that he demonstrates 
who he is. Excuse me, when did I start? I, I didn't even check the time. Okay, okay, thank you. God demonstrates who he is. So he declares who he is, he defines who he is, he demonstrates who he is. Verse 7, keep mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Okay, now before we hear what he does with this, this is an important text and one that has to be exegeted carefully because there is an apparent contradiction on the surface of that text. The Lord who forgives sins but doesn't clear the guilty. That sounds like a contradiction, and so you have to carefully exegete that so that you resolve the apparent contradiction and show how the gospel the the uh, the forensic justification that you are declared righteous before God not by works but by grace through faith is not contradicted by the statement of who will you know no wise acquit the guilty you know there so you got to carefully handle this text because that's kind of one of the landmine texts and one which in the time of the reformation the roman catholics were all too quick to hang on to so, uh, you know, it's important for us to be good experts on this apparent contradiction and know how to resolve it. Let's see what Cameron does with it. So God demonstrates who he is. God demonstrates his steadfast love. You know, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He that will by no means clear the guilty. He is a forgiving God. He is a loving and forgiving God. Okay, yes. Now the question is, does God forgive me? And that will make the, if, if you can preach that God forgives them, is merciful towards them, then you take the gospel from abstract to actual proclamation to an individual person. Let's see what he does. Why did God set his love on Israel? Was it because anything special about them? He chose to love them and maintain that love in faithfulness to the promises he had made. He is a, he is a faithful covenant God. And that's reassuring because he is, he is committed to his covenants even though we break them. God demonstrates forgiveness. He is a forgiving God. And have you ever thought about this, you know, with these questions? Because here in verse 7... I would say that in verse 7, here we have the true mystery of the Bible. I call this the greatest problem in the Bible. Of course, it's not a problem, but I, it, it's, there's a paradox here that it, it is great to talk about because, because it points us to the question we should be asking. And this is the question we should be steering people towards asking. Rather than how can a loving God send people to hell, the mystery right here is how can God be a forgiving God? How can he be a loving God and yet by no means clear the guilty? Good. He's got the contradiction and the paradox in his target. You know, sites. let's see what he does with it. He is so committed to his character that he can by no means clear the guilty. Who's the guilty? For all of sin. And it's serious. 
We need to help people understand the seriousness of that. And, and the, seri- the sinfulness of sin is not just the sinfulness of sin. It is who we have sinned against. Now, this is where you got to really be careful. Because everyone listening to the sound of your voice, there when you preached it for the first time here on Fighting for the Faith, every single one of us says, yeah, but I'm guilty. <laughs> I have broken God's law. I have transgressed his commandments. Can God be forgiving and merciful to me? I think this is helpful when, when we look at it in the way that if I lied to my daughter, she can do nothing to me. But if I lie to my wife, I'm going to be sleeping on the sofa. Okay. If I lie to my boss, he can fire me. And if I lie to the government, well, they can throw me in jail or send a drone to shoot me down or put me on a boat and ship me back uh, to, the, to Australia, to the great south land. I mean, what changed? Did the sin change in all those situations? No. It was what changed? The authority sinned against. And the higher the authority, the greater the consequence. Yes, and each and every one of us is going, yeah, but I'm, I've sinned against the greatest authority there is. I've sinned against God himself. If God is an infinite authority, how serious would a lie be to him? Perhaps that is why he says all lies will end up in the lake of fire. Okay, now we're getting to consequences. Good, this is part of preaching the law. Because it's not just what we do, it's who we do it against. And we need to understand the reasonableness of hell. How can a loving God send people to hell? No, wrong question. Why doesn't God send everyone to hell? Right question. Help people ask the right question. And so God... Yeah, but here's... here's let's, let's even t- tweak the question a little bit. How do I not go to hell? As the listener, how, how do I know that that I'm not going to end up there. Here is the mystery. He is a forgiving God, but he cannot clear the guilty. He would have to un-God himself to just let sinners go free. And we don't want corrupt judges, do we? Nobody wants a corrupt judge. We don't want to see the guilty go unpunished because we, we are still, though we are sinful, we are still made in God's image and we have that desire for justice. But here's the problem is that we are guilty too. People are, right on, right on. Why doesn't God deal with all the wickedness in the world? Because you're wicked too. Bingo. Good. He is holding it back. He is merciful. And think about this as well. Uh, he actually doesn't hold it back. Now, this is here's the thing. This is where penal substitutionary atonement comes in. God doesn't hold back. He let all of his wrath, he poured out all of his wrath down to the dregs on Christ. Remember, God laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He's pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. So it's, you know, the idea here is is that the cross has to be central then here in resolving the paradox. Let's see if it comes up. In a world without sin, if Adam and Eve had never sinned, and God is a God who loves to demonstrate who he is. He is so into that. 
That is really the big picture. God glorifying himself by demonstrating who he is, by revealing himself. And how could God reveal... Yeah, and here's the thing. What God reveals in Exodus gives you a straight beeline to the cross. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving sins. That's, you know, that's him pronouncing, you know, his character, who he is. And then he demonstrates all of that in that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for our sins. And there's the forgiveness of sins in action by what God has done. So you got to take that and buckle it right to the cross so that the, the abstract, the one who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, who forgives transgressions, that abstract is then concretized, if that's even a word, in the, in the crucifixion of the Son of God. His mercy and forgiveness in a world without sin. They would remain hidden, forever unknown. And that is something that God is opposed to. God, He wants to make those things known. So in some bizarre way, and remember, you know, people say you can't put God in a box, but he puts us in a box. We can't understand everything. But in some way, he wants to make these known. And sin is a, the fall and sin is a divine necessity in some way for God to make those parts of his character known, isn't it? How else would he make his forgiveness and his mercy known in a world without sin? He is not the author of sin. No, I'm not suggesting that. We are. We are responsible. But, but it is through that that God is able to demonstrate those sides of himself, his forgiveness and his mercy. And yet there still is a problem. And the problem is that God cannot clear the guilty. He can't. He can't do it. It's not because he's unable or he has a hand tied behind his back. It's because it's a violation of his character to let the guilty go free. So how? And here is the great setup. The forgiving God is unable to clear the guilty. What is he to do? How is he to resolve that? And we're heading right to the gospel now. Good. And there is the great paradox solved in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right on. Right on. Now let's flesh all this out. What a glorious gospel to preach. The gospel with muscles. When we preach the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes down and fulfills the whole law that we have broken and then goes to the cross and takes the punishment that we deserve and then exchanges his righteousness and gives it to us in return for us to give him our sin so that that way God can be both just and the justifier of the guilty. It's the only way. It's the only way. And this is a great question to ask Jehovah's Witnesses. Is if Jesus Christ is not God, then how is God just in punishing him? Because you see, if it's not just someone said in my own church, said, I always thought that if there was someone who was sinless, that would be an acceptable sacrifice. No. Because if God put Michael the archangel on the cross as the Jehovah's Witnesses 
and some Seventh-day Adventists believe, then he would be unjust. He would be violating his character because he would be punishing, you know, it is an abomination, it says the problems. He who condemns the just and he who justifies the wicked, both of them are an abomination. God would be an abomination to do that. He cannot do that. The only way is if the lawgiver, God himself, comes down and does that for us. It's the only way that God can be both just and meet the requirements of his justice and demonstrate his great love to us in laying down his life for us. Praise God. Praise God for a God who would find a way that we could never come up with. And that's the muscles on the gospel to talk about our great God, that he would do that, that there was no other way. And we realize that, that Jesus was not afraid of Satan. He wasn't afraid of the Jews. He wasn't afraid of the Romans and the emergent Pontius Pilate who said what is true. He wasn't afraid of any of those. He said to Pilate, you would have no power at all except my father gives it to you at this hour. They could behold the composure of Jesus as he faced the cross. But what did he fear? He feared the cup. Is there another way? There was no other way. The cup, what was the cup? It was the cup of God's wrath, his righteous indignation. He had to face that. He wasn't afraid of what the Romans could do in beating him. He was terrified of the cup because he understood the horror of the wrath of God. How much should we fear that if the Lord himself feared that? But because of his great love, he went anyway. Because it was the only way. There was no other way. There is no other way that the equation works, that God can demonstrate his forgiveness and his love and yet by no means clear the guilty because the punishment has been dished out on the substitute. So there we see it. The solution. God has revealed who he is and the solution to the dilemma in our eyes, in his character, that he is a forgiving God yet cannot clear the guilty is found in Jesus Christ. That is our God. That is who he is. Moses may not have fully understood that. Probably had some glimmer of that. But that is what laid ahead, that God in his son was going to reconcile that dilemma. That he might be, as Paul says in Romans, both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. That those of us who have faith in him, we have faith in a substitute who has taken that punishment in our place. That way God is just. He is just because he has dished out the punishment on that sin. God demonstrates all of those attributes in harmony through the person and work of Christ. So we see that God alone, no one else, not the emergent wackos from across the river. God, in his word, he declares, he defines, and he demonstrates who he is. He does all of those things. No one else is allowed to do that. One way or another, they will pay for doing that. But we have voices to declare our great God, to declare who he is, 
what, because we have a better opinion than other people? No, because God has revealed himself through his word and we know that truth and we can speak with that authority. And at the end there in verse 8, we see that Moses made haste, bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. When God revealed who he is to Moses, he didn't say, well, don't know if I agree with that. Don't know if I would present you that way. I don't know if I, maybe you need a, political team around you to groom you and to make you more presentable to the world around you. Now he bowed and worshipped. We worship God on his terms. It's a terrifying thing when you hear people, as I heard a professor at um, Baylor University say that if I discovered that the God of the God that these Calvinists believe in, that if, if he was that God, I could never worship that God. And the point not being about Calvinism, but simply to say that you don't get to decide how God is. And you don't get to just walk around and say, I could never worship that God. One way or another, you will worship him. Whether you worship him in faith and love, or whether you worship him because he busts your kneecaps with his righteous rod of iron, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, he will be worshipped. Rob Bell wrote his book saying that there is no hell. Here's the scary thing, is that Rob Bell will find out that he is wrong one way or another. May it be on this side of eternity. Moses, this side of eternity, he knew God has revealed himself. He made haste. He bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. That is the right response. That is how scientists should respond when they study DNA. That is how doctors should respond when they look at an ultrasound. That is how we should respond when we walk out the door and look at the sky and look at the land. We should bow and worship this great God who made all these things. It's interesting, you know, um, I have a very good friend in Australia, one of my best friends, someone who I witnessed to and became a Christian. He went through a horrendous experience that I won't go into, but it was, it was a truly horrendous thing. And I, I thought honestly that he would, there was a part of me that thought he would depart from the faith. Um, it was just such hardship. He was such a new believer. And he went through depression. But you know what? He came to me one day and this really surprised me. He said, Cameron, he said, uh, I've been cured of depression by studying God's attributes who God is. There is a man like Moses who is not seeking God's hand. He is seeking God's face. He is not trying to fashion a God in his own image, but he is stopping and listening, seeing who God is and worshipping God on his terms. Let me ask you, do you seek God's face or just his hand? Do you know him? Are you sure you are not one of the people to whom Jesus will say, depart from me? I never knew you.
Okay, that's a that's a whopper of a question to ask. You need to resolve it with the gospel and and applied to the individuals. Don't read William P. Young's Golden Calf. Pursue God through the pages of Scripture and embrace Him. Embrace God as He declares, defines, and demonstrates who He is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this wonderful opportunity to come to this beautiful part of the world and declare Your beautiful Word. By the power of your spirit, may you penetrate into the lives of these people in spite of my limitations as a man and work by your spirit, convicting and comforting and converting. We thank you, Lord, that with you all things are possible, that you are the great God, and that you have given us your word so that we would know you, that we might have eternal life. Thank you for that precious, glorious gift. And thank you for the privilege that you speak your glorious, perfect message through fallen vessels that you have chosen to redeem. Please bless this church, bless their labor, Give their pastor strength and courage to stand for your truth and also give the people courage to be a voice, a declaring voice for you in an unbelieving world. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So overall, it's, I mean, it's a good sermon, there's law, there's gospel, and there's some loose ends, if you would. And like I said, I've described this as we have horses that are not actually hitched together as a team, pulling in the same direction towards the same goal. And this is, a, let me put it this way, this is an easy type of you know, series of little mistakes to make because part of learning how to preach is is not just learning what to say, but also learning what not to say. Um, in the time that you have, the it is better to say less and develop fewer topics with some depth that are clearly connected to the main theme and the main goal of the sermon. And and see that would be my question. It, you know, if if I were sitting down with Cameron, my immediate question would be. What exactly was the goal that you were aiming for in the sermon? Because I, by listening to it, wasn't able to discern a specific goal. It seems like there were several different goals. And as a result of it, the the sermon pulled in a couple of different directions. And as a result of it, like I said, there was law, there was gospel, there was all kinds of truth there. Um, there was, and, and that's not bad that that's still good. But the issue is, is that there is a difference though, between making statements that are factually true regarding the gospel and proclaiming the gospel and comforting terrified consciences who are guilty of breaking God's law with the gospel. And so that's, you know, that's as you develop and you preach more, uh, Cameron, you're going to, you know, be able to start to really sharpen and focus your sermons so that they have a clear goal. 
And also you're going to be able to learn how to really use the law lawfully, you know, to kill, to strip people of their self-righteousness, to show them that they, they are wicked and in need of a savior and proclaim the gospel with equal vigor so that they truly believe after you know hearing the the law and the gospel they believe that they are forgiven believe that they are in Christ believe that they have a right standing with God and so you know that that's kind of how you have to pull all of the different things together and the way you do that is not by saying more but by saying less and g- digging deeper in the less things that you say so, uh, like I said, though, uh, overall, this is a good sermon, not a bad one. There's nothing that I would, you know, it's not like I'm sitting in on the, uh, you know, a seeker-driven sermon and going, yeah, no, oh, no, yeah, 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 no. If anything, you know, all of the uh, criticisms I uh, offered here, you know, they were intended to be constructive rather than demonstrating major errors on the part of the, um, the person delivering. So what did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Until next week, it'll be Wednesday. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. It's by Carrie's death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>